0: Please open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 1, Exodus chapter 1, I'll be preaching this morning in verses 8 through 22, Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 through 22, and as you turn there, please join with me in prayer as we ask God's blessing on the reading and preaching of His Holy Word. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for the Gospel that we see presented to us in Exodus. Exodus. For there we find your sovereign work of grace, saving a people for yourself and to your glory. We pray now that as we read your word and hear it preached, that it would be a means of grace to strengthen us in our perseverance and to call us to repentance. Strengthen me as your minister, uh, imperfect and weak and frail. Strengthen me to minister to your people and all for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hear the word of the Lord this morning from Exodus 1, verses 8 through 22. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, He gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen? To what... Can we compare being a subject to sin? It's a great question that you should ask yourself as you read through the Bible, for the Bible uses many different metaphors and analogies to describe us being a subject to sin. Let me share with you a few of them. Sin is like a stain that we cannot wash off. Jeremiah chapter 2. Verse 22 says, Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before you, declares the Lord God. So sin is like a stain upon us. Sin is like a debt that we cannot pay. You'll remember in the Gospels when the woman came and uh, anointed Jesus, or uh, washed Jesus' feet, and and dried his feet with the hair from her head. And the Pharisee that was there witnessing this was incensed by it. And Jesus told that Pharisee a parable uh, about two men who were forgiven debts. One a small debt and one a great debt. And then he asked, who will love the, the man who forgave the debt more? And the Pharisee said, the one who's been forgiven much. And Jesus answered that he had answered correctly and that this woman came and washed Jesus' feet because she had been forgiven much. Sin is like a debt that we cannot pay. Sin is like a stain that we cannot wash off. Sin is also like a snare that entraps us. Proverbs 29, verse 6 says, "...an evil man is ensnared in his transgression, but a righteous man sings and rejoices." Like some sort of a, a, an animal in the forest that's been caught in a trap, so sin ensnares us. Sin is like a sickness that we need healing from. Luke chapter five verses thirty-one through thirty-two, Jesus said that those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So sin is like a stain. Sin is like a debt that we can't pay. Sin is like a snare that entraps us. Sin is like a sickness that we need to be healed from. And in our passage this morning, and really the the book of Exodus, we see that sin is like slavery. Sin is like slavery. It's not only used here in the book of Exodus, but it's used in other places in the New Testament. Prominent in Romans chapter 6, where Paul uses the the idea that uh, sin enslaves us in Romans chapter 6. Listen to a few of the verses from Romans chapter 6. Verse 12 says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. So sin is like a ruler that subjugates us under its authority. Verse 14, sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Again, the idea that sin enslaves us. It exercises a rule and a reign, a dominion and authority over us. Verses 17-18, through Paul says, Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin, there's the word, slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin. There's the analogy again. Set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness, Paul says. So notice the comparison. You can either be a slave under the subjection of sin or you can be a slave under the subjection of God, a slave to righteousness. Verse 22 you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, Paul says in Romans 6.22. Sin enslaves us. Sin reigns over us. Sin entangles us in bondage. And what sort of wages do we receive from this cruel and hideous taskmaster? Well, Paul says in Romans six. That the wages of sin is what? It's death, isn't it? We need someone to overrule the reign of sin in our life. That's what we need. Sin controls us and governs us and has authority and dominion over us. And the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that there has... Come one who has overruled the decree of sin and has set us free from sin and put us into service of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This is what Exodus is all about. God overrules sin to save us. Sin makes its decree of death and slavery and God overrules the decree of sin and He sets us free that we might gather, be gathered to Him to serve Him. He cancels its authority over us. He declares us free from sin. He breaks the power of sin over us. God overrules sin to save us. In our passage today, we see that Pharaoh is going to enslave Israel in bondage and try to destroy them. That is going to be Pharaoh's decree. But God is going to overrule Pharaoh's decree. And He is going to bless His people in spite of Pharaoh's decree to them. And it's a picture for us of our salvation. It is a, a microcosm. It's, it's an example, a sign for us of what it is like when we are called from slavery to sin and brought to the gospel of grace. So let's look at this passage together. What does God overrule to save us from sin? First in this passage, I want you to see that God overrules sin's slavery. Number one, God overrules sin's slavery. We find as we begin to read in chapter 8 that the old alliance between Jacob's offspring that had been established by Joseph and a former king of Egypt, that old alliance that was once mutually beneficial is now over. You'll remember the story of Jacob's family going down to Egypt, that their life might be preserved, that God had sent Joseph there ahead of them, and that even though there was great famine in the land God provided for his people in Egypt. And in verse 8 we learn that there was a new king in Egypt. There's a new king in town and this pharaoh verse 8 tells us did not know Joseph. It's not that he had never heard of Joseph, but the idea is that he is not here to honor the old alliance between the Hebrews and the Egyptians and he embarks on a campaign a national campaign of fear to demonize the Israelites who are living in Egypt. Look at what he says to his people. And you should imagine here a type of national address like a president or a king who would stand before the country or his court or his legislature and issue a national address. Here's Pharaoh's national address to the Egyptians. It's there in verse 9. Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too Mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. The fear here that he's trying to instill in the Egyptians is that because the Israelites are growing to such great numbers in Egypt, that if Egypt embarks on a warfare campaign that the pressure from outside will not be able to withstand the pressure from inside. The fear that he's trying to instill in other Egyptians is that with so many Israelites now uh, swarming all of Egypt, as we learned last week, that God had blessed them with such great numbers, they're swarming Egypt. The idea that Pharaoh is trying to communicate to Egypt is that there should be a a fear, a suspicion of the Israelites that they will try to overtake Egypt, overthrow the government, overthrow them, and seize Egypt for themselves. That is Pharaoh's campaign. That is his decree. And so as a result, what he wants to do is, verse 10, deal shrewdly with them. We have to find some sort of a way to decrease the population growth of Israelites in Egypt and address this growing population of foreigners in their land. And it's remarkable to even think, just stop for a moment and think about how remarkable it is. All the years that have passed, roughly 400 years now have passed, and they, God has so blessed them that they have still preserved their own unique national identity as Israelites and as Hebrews living in Egypt. That alone is a testament to God's providence for Israel. What does Pharaoh propose? Verse 11, they enslave the Hebrews. They set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy Burdens. They are going to use this group to do harsh manual labor. And so they, they round up some Israelites and send them off to Pharaoh's store cities, Python and Ramesses, probably military garrisons, strategically placed to provide protection for the kingdom of Egypt. And so what Pharaoh proposes to do is, carry away the workforce of the Hebrews, separating them from their families, not giving them the time and access that they need as families at home for the population to grow through the means of marriage and family. That's what Pharaoh is proposing here. If he can separate them, the population increase will be slowed down. However, God overrules this decree from Pharaoh, doesn't He? Verse 12, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they were spread abroad. Isn't that interesting? So whatever time uh, these husbands are able to come back from these cities, God is blessing these homes and the population growth continues to boom. And in fact, the more harshly the Egyptians oppress the Israelites God is continuing to bless them. He is blessing their numbers and they continue to grow. And as a result, the Egyptians respond in even more fear. They become even more afraid of the Israelites. Not only the fear that they would uh, overtake Egypt from within, but now they're not able to curb the population growth of the Hebrews. What do they do? They double down on this effort. Verse 13, they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. There's the word. Work as slaves. And made their lives bitter with hard service. Notice the adjective upon adjective upon adjective that Moses is adding here. In contrast, just as we saw last week in verse 7 of how he uses all these Seven adjectives to describe the blessing of the Israelites in the land. Now he is, he is stacking adjectives to describe the hardship of their service in Egypt. Making their lives bitter with hard service. What kind of service? Mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. So you can just imagine, imagine how hot it is in Georgia in July and August. And just translate that to Egypt and being out working in the fields every day, working out uh, outside in mortar and brick, making brick, the hard manual labor that would be involved in that. And the thought, no doubt, was that this would result in a decrease of the population of the Hebrews. That they would be worked so hard that they would be worked to death that those who were weak among them would not be given the time needed to recover from illness or sickness, that those who were elderly and feeble would be taken advantage of and not respected, and that they would just begin to kill kill off, begin to die off and decrease the population. Not only in the hard manual labor, but notice that this is ruthless. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves, So it's not only just the hard manual labor that they are being required to do, but it is the whip of the taskmasters beating them into subjection, requiring of them work than anyone should have to do. What a picture this is of what it means to be in slavery to sin. Sin is a cruel and hideous taskmaster. I wonder if you saw over this week, maybe even Sunday night, one of the advertisements in the Super Bowl was the He Gets Us. Did you see the He Gets Us advertisement that played during the Super Bowl? If you haven't, it's been all, all in the news this week. And the He Gets Us commercial or advertisement that ran was, if you hadn't seen it, it is a series of pictures, presumably uh, AI-generated, computer-generated pictures of individuals washing the feet of others. And so there's all these scenes where a police officer is washing the feet of a man in an alley, Or uh, a neighbor lady is washing, a woman is washing the feet of her Muslim neighbor. Uh, A woman, presumably a protester, is washing the feet of a woman in front of an abortion clinic. Uh, A uh, priest is washing the feet of someone who appears, uh, I don't know how you even begin to describe the appearance of that picture. You, you, You need to see it. And so the idea is that here's all these pictures of people having their feet washed, and then the the final tagline is that it, it says, Jesus did not teach hate. He washed feet, was the commercial. It's a powerful commercial, actually. If you go to the He Gets Us website, and you click on the link that talks about their agenda, their word, not mine, what's our agenda, they will tell you that their agenda is, throughout our shared history, Jesus has represented the ultimate good that humankind is capable of aspiring to, is what they say. And though some no longer believe in God, most are still compelled by the idea of a person capable of, of unconditional love for others despite their differences. They're not completely wrong in this. Jesus is held out for us as a moral example, especially a passage like Philippians chapter 2 when the church, especially Christians, are called to have the mind of Christ and and serve one another and put the needs of others before their own. So that idea is not foreign to scripture. But it doesn't really tell the whole gospel, especially for those who are lost and enslaved in their sins. A pastor in Ireland by the name of Jamie Bambrick put together a commercial of what it should have been. A campaign he called, He Saves Us. And rather than computer-generated pictures of people having their feet washed, What he presented were pictures of actual people, people who were formers, people like Kat Von D, who was a former witch, people like Mike Burden, a former KKK member, people like Pastor Jeff Durbin, a former drug addict and occultist, people like Brittany De La Mora, who was a former adult film industry star people like Dr. Rosaria Butterfield, a former lesbian activist. And the final tagline in this he gets or he saves us is not Jesus didn't teach hate, he washed feet. Instead it was Jesus doesn't just get us. He saves us. He saves us. That's the gospel, isn't it? brothers and sisters. It's not just that Jesus came to live as a man to identify with us, but He came to be like us in order to save us. And I know you're probably thinking right now, well, what's the big deal? I, I saw the advertisement. and didn't really have any issue with it. Don't you want people to be able to identify with Jesus in their struggles in life? Don't we want to see people to see Jesus as being a loving kind of Savior, let me ask you a few questions. Let's just test that for a moment here. If you had cancer, would you want the doctor to tell you about he how he was able to beat cancer or administer life-saving treatment to you? If you were bitten by a rattlesnake and the venom was coursing through your veins, would you want a passerby? to tell you about how wonderful the anti-venom is that's in their pack or give you the shot of anti-venom to help save your life? If you were in a burning house, would you want your neighbor to come and knock on the door and tell you the phone number for 911? Or would you want your neighbor to help you save your family from certain death? If you were lost in the wilderness, would you want a passerby to tell you how wonderful it is to have a map and a compass or to save you from starvation and lead you back to civilization? The gospel is not merely that Jesus came to identify with us and get us. The gospel is that Jesus came to save us from the sin that enslaves us. The Gospel is that Jesus came to overrule sin's decree of slavery. That's what we're seeing here in Exodus. What we're seeing here is that sin in its desire and effort is to enslave and keep in bondage, but God in His grace and mercy overrules sin's slavery and sets us free that we might live a life for Him. What does God overrule to set us free from sin? Well, He overrules sin's slavery. And secondly, I want you to see that He overrules sin's curse. He overrules sin's slavery, number one. And number two, He overrules sin's curse. Pharaoh's decree of enslavement is not working to decrease the population. And so, Pharaoh undertakes a campaign of death and begins to decree an infanticide to take place in Egypt. He gathers midwives, Hebrew midwives, and gives them a command. Their names are presented for us there in verse, verse 15. Shifra and Puah. It's so interesting here that these two seemingly insignificant Hebrew women... They're the heroes of the story here. They are so important that the king of Egypt is not even named one time in the passage. The king of the most powerful country at the time, he is not named. But two Hebrew midwives, they get the honor in the passage of being named in the story. What does Pharaoh tell them to do? Verse 16 when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women, when you observe the sex of the baby, if it is a son, if it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Isn't it interesting that Pharaoh doesn't say, if it is a male, he shall die. If it is a female, she shall live. But rather, he uses the familial language, the the language of a family, of a son and daughter. There's something far more sinister behind Pharaoh's decree here. Satan is actively at work trying to prevent the son of Eve from being born, who will deal the fatal blow and bruise the head of the serpent. And so what Pharaoh is doing is he is trying to stop a Savior from being born who will deliver God's people. Shiphrah and Pua, how do they respond? Well, verse 17, Moses tells us that they feared the king of kings more than they feared the king of Egypt. God had installed two of His faithful Hebrew women to overrule the decree of Pharaoh. Moses tells us that they feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. They disobeyed the king. Even though the king of Egypt could put them to death for disobeying his command, they feared God more than they feared the king of Egypt. And so they let them let the male children live. And how do we know they let them? Live? How long did this take for Pharaoh to realize? Obviously, it took a while. We have good reason to believe that in the ancient Near Eastern culture, it was hard to tell the difference between a newborn baby boy and a newborn baby girl. They probably both dressed alike. They sounded alike. They were about the same size until they came of a certain age. So here they are for a prolonged period of time with a covert operation, undermining the decree of Pharaoh. Because they feared God more than they feared the king of Egypt. Pharaoh eventually catches wind of this. He learns of this and he calls them to himself. In verse 18, what does he say? Why have you done this and let the male children live? You have disobeyed a direct command. And what do they say? Hebrew women aren't like the Egyptian women. They have the children before we can get there, is what they say. The commentators that I read have wrestled to explain this verse. Were the midwives telling a lie to the king of Egypt to protect? Is this a justifiable lie in the text? Or is the statement true and they're drawing a comparison between... The Hebrew women and the Egyptian women. That the that the Egyptian women. One commentator I read proposed that perhaps the Egyptian women were more lazy in childbirth than the Hebrew women. I won't pass judgment on that. Here's what I think is actually happening in the text: God is blessing them. We've seen that already, right? God is causing them to be fruitful and multiply. Egypt is swarming and no matter Pharaoh's campaigns of slavery and of death, God is continuing to bless them. And isn't this the hope that God gave in Genesis 3, chapter 16? That even though Eve had come under a curse, God would greatly increase her pain and childbearing, even though there was that. There was held out for her the promise that there would come a son who would bruise the head of the serpent. So what do I think is happening here? I think we should consider a supernatural element in this story. That God is blessing these Hebrew families, including the women, and that they are able more vigorously to give birth to their children. God is overruling the decree of Pharaoh. And so how does God respond to these two midwives? He blesses them. They were probably of advanced years, older in life, dedicating themselves to medical service to God's people. And here later on in life, God deals well with them. He blesses them because they feared Him. He gave them families, the blessing of children later on in their life. And He continued to bless the Hebrews in their population growth. It's extraordinary. Don't you love the story here. So what does Pharaoh do in response to all this? He issues an all-out national decree of outright infanticide. He tells all the Egyptians, issues this decree to the Egyptians, you are to take every son born of the Hebrews and throw that child into the Nile River. Perhaps it was couched in terms that this was a religious service that the Egyptians were offering up to the God of the Nile. It was a convenient way for Pharaoh to dispose of the bodies of little Hebrew male baby boys. Getting them away. Decreasing the population of Hebrews. And making every effort to prevent a Savior from coming and setting God's people free. Thought about this, the hideousness, just the, the horrible thought of this in Exodus chapter 1 as I read this week Numbers chapter 11. You know what happens in Numbers chapter 11? The Israelites have fond memories of being in Egypt. Just let the contrast of that settle in on you. For a moment, Numbers eleven verses four through five. Just consider this. Listen to this. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, "Oh that we had meat to eat!" They cry out. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. You just think about that. Oh, we had all the fish we wanted. It didn't cost anything for us to eat the fish in Egypt. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. Oh, we miss all the wonderful food that we were able to eat in Egypt and it didn't cost us anything. But now our strength is dried up and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at, they say in Numbers 11. They preferred the food, uh, just the mere rations they were given by the Egyptians in slavery more than they craved the bread that God gave them from heaven. Instead of seeing sin as a cruel taskmaster of death that enslaves, we are inclined, like the Israelites in our passions, to crave that which separates us from God. We have fond memories of being in slavery to sin. We think of the short-term satisfaction that it brings to our cravings more than the sinister enslavement that sin had caught us in. I hope you're wondering this morning, Pastor, how can I be more free from sin? How can I be free from sin's slavery in my life? That's a great question. Number one, You need to see, like the Israelites had to learn, that you are enslaved to sin. You and I need to view sin rightly. As a hideous taskmaster. And we need to see ourselves secondly as those who have been set free from sin because of the work of Jesus Christ. God overrules sin to set us free. He overrules sin's slavery. He overrules sin's curse that we might be free to serve Him. So every time, every time you see the stain of sin in your life, go to the fountain of the Lord Jesus Christ for cleansing. Every time sin comes to collect a debt from you, you tell that debt collector that the Lord Jesus Christ has paid your debt in full. Every time... You get ensnared by sin. You call out to your Savior, Jesus Christ, to come and save you and set you free. Every time you become afflicted with the sickness of sin, you run to the great physician who can administer the life-giving medicine of His grace that you and I so desperately need. Every time sin comes to enslave you, you cling to your new Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go to Him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You didn't simply come to earth to become a man to get us. You came to save us from our sins. You came to save us from ourselves. Lord, we pray that this morning that the Gospel would become more near and dear and precious to us. We pray that we would see sin rightly as a sickness, as a sane, as a snare, as a hideous taskmaster bent on our destruction, bent upon cursing us, bent upon keeping us enslaved. And help us to see the beautiful Gospel of Your grace that sets us free from sin and death. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.